This episode is sponsored by S&P Global Sustainable One, introducing you to a single source of essential sustainability intelligence. Visit our new website, spglobal.com forward slash ESG. And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, we're all about net zero. What it really means, what it means to supply chains, how food companies are putting it on the menu, and the opportunity for Biden's infrastructure plan. It's much ado about, well, zero. This week on 350. It's May 14th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz's very own vice president and editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Chairman. How are you today? I'm glad we're being so formal. All good here. It's been a beautiful <laughs> week here in the Bay Area, and uh, all life is good. But you know what? I'm I'm really looking forward, as much as I always do, to next week. But next week, next Monday in particular, was that the 17th? We are releasing, I'll let you say it. The 30 under 30 class of 2021. Yes, we are. And it's always a big event for us in that we love putting it out there. And it's also, it's, it's a Herculean task to figure out who to, who's in that uh, cohort uh, this year and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, representative of everything we want to represent globally and uh, all the other ways. And to share it with the world, it's it's so much fun to put this out into the world and see what happens. And you know, it's also fun. I don't know. We probably didn't do that this year. We've done it in the past. I was catching up with some of the past uh, thirty under thirties, and it's really interesting. Now that this is our sixth annual doing this, so some of these people are into their mid thirties and and well in the way of their careers, uh, even as they were just beginning them uh, back when they were selected for this honor. Um, and it's just great to watch them. Some of them are still in touch with. Uh, one of them, Jeremy Bond, is now uh, working with us to set up our greenbiz.org. And several others who have risen uh, up the ranks. Um, I'm thinking of Sasha Calder, for example, who's now the head of sustainability at a, a synthetic biology company called Genomatica. And um, I mean, really, she's in the heart of a of a company and the leadership team of a company that is uh, putting sustainability in the center. And um, it's just really gratifying to see people like Jeremy and Sasha, and I'm sure many, many others. Yeah, I mean Holly Beal from Microsoft. There's, I mean, if I go, if I were to go through the list, yeah, there's, there's absolutely people who've gone on to do even 
bigger things since they were on the list. Um, and I also just want to take a moment to do a big, big shout out to Elsa Wenzel, who <laughs> took on the Herculean task of of wrangling all the edits on this one. She's uh, our intrepid uh, senior contributor and uh, longtime collaborator with us and the team, uh, former managing editor. So thanks, Elsa, for all the help on this project. And that's coming up on uh, Monday, the 17th. Uh, so look forward to that. But let's look back right now at the Week in Review. So we're going to talk about net zero, uh, as we said. This is going to be our little theme. This week, uh, we had net zero week. All seven of the Green Biz weekly e-newsletters touched upon some aspect of net zero. And since I write the Monday newsletter, Green Buzz, uh, I kicked it off with kind of a level setting piece talking about, uh, you know, what net zero is and and how it differs from things like carbon neutral and does it rely too much on offsets and and can we really get there with the existing technologies and and the ultimate question that i think is being asked a lot is is net zero greenwash and uh, so i think that these these are all questions that i think about as i look at this deluge of of commitments and and goal setting that companies and cities and nations are building and around net zero they're committing to by some year, whether it's 2050 or in the case of uh, IBM, I think it was 2040 or 2035, they're, they're, they're now uh, moving the bar even closer. So such a dynamic world, uh, such a squirrely world in terms of definitions and standards. And uh, I think it's important that we all acknowledge that and not just wave our arms and say, everybody's net zero. It's because not net zero is not the same for everyone. Yeah. And I, I want to go to your headline, quoting the bard himself, William Shakespeare. Is this much ado about nothing? And I actually, you know, there is a lot of skepticism and rightly so. But I am going to be, I'm the going to put my little Pollyanna hat on and uh, and say that I'm thrilled that this is out there and being talked about so much because it's really got the world more focused on it, even, you know, more than the, as you referenced, the 80 by 50. I I remembered that phrase (laughs) from a few years ago, Um, you know, and we have- That's an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. (laughs) That was the bold goal of not that very long ago. And now it's, uh, that would be, uh, it would not pass muster, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I guess- (sighs) Or would it? I mean, come on. I mean, if, if you really did that, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, it, and then bought this, the, the offsets. But, but I mean, seriously, I think the thing that, that I appreciate with with these declarations is that they're out there. And now we can hold people accountable and we can really start asking, well, what does it mean to be this way? What, what do you have to do with your supply chain? What do you have? How do you have to change your energy mix? What, what's part of that? Is it hydro? Is it nuclear? I mean, and it's just, I think it's just at least sparked the conversation in a different way than for some reason it hasn't been, it hasn't been captured in this way before. Um, I don't know. That's, that's my gut. I totally agree. And as, as people have said about greenwash, that greenwash is a good thing in that it means that companies are trying to uh, put themselves out there and be and, and show up as as green or sustainable or, or whatever the f- formulation wants to be. 
And that means that even if they're not exactly doing what they're saying or not at all doing what they're saying, at least now we can hold them accountable. They have said certain things. Now we, they're part of the conversation, whether they want it to be or not. And, and it also means that these things are important enough that companies feel they need to be vocal on them. And again, whether that's the deception or in some cases fraud may be uh, are definitely not a good thing. The fact that they want to be part of the conversation is in some ways a positive. And I, I, I guess I'm wearing my Pollyanna hat right now uh, as well. <laughs> but, but, but I think that is the, the, the glass half full part of this, that this is a good thing. And, and, and that certainly is true for net zero, although net zero, I think, has a lot more, in most cases, has a lot more credibility. And there are some, uh, Exxon being the notorious case where they're talking about a intensity, which means that they're talking about getting to reducing their carbon intensity, meaning the amount of carbon per dollar of revenue or barrel of oil or something. And that means that they're they're going to continue to emit more and more as they grow and grow, even though it's at a smaller level per unit, if you will. And so that's greenwash. And they're getting yeah. called out for that. And, and they're I think they're going to be out in the wilderness if they're not already on that score. So this is a really yep. important conversation. And I think... Uh, you know, it's being in frame that way. And, and, and I think it's, there's going to be huge, huge dollars and pounds and euros and yen behind these kinds of things. And that gets us to our second story that uh, CJ Klaus, Carol Klaus, uh, wrote for the Greenfin weekly newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday, um, talking about how all this lines up with the Biden infrastructure plan. And uh, that in and of itself is 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 pretty interesting. Uh, in other words, how the infrastructure plan, if it's enacted uh, in all the ways it could be, really is a, a, a decarbonization and ultimately net zero plan. In fact, she says, we can't really get to our net zero commitment without the infrastructure plan. And and so, therefore, that is part and parcel of what we need to be doing. Yeah, I mean, people have been saying this for a while that this this infrastructure plan equals the the Biden climate plan. And there are some great numbers in here. I mean, actually, some overwhelming numbers in this story about the investments that it will take. But that uh, you know, so let's just let's just pop in here with an example. The key target for energy under Biden's proposal is 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035. And mm -hmm. right now we're, we're at 40%. So holy cow, that's what, 14 years? Um, so a lot of investment has to go into not just the renewables, but the grid. So we've got $100 billion set aside by the federal government, or at least proposed to be, uh, for power grid moder modernization resilience. But there's going to be a lot more money that needs to come in behind that private money um, to to get us to to that to that place. Um, there's there's tons of other examples um, for EV infrastructure, for example, um, you know, and so forth. And I just I think about all of the corporate green bonds and and so forth that are coming out, and I I'm starting to think about ways that those could link over to these infrastructure investments, things like water which which we don't hear as much about in in these plans but i know it's it's a it's a becoming more of a part of of the planning process uh, and and it was mentioned a number of times at the summit i haven't really seen the 
the payout of that, right, of, of new policies proposed on top of that. But I know for, you know, this when I talk about the summit, I'm talking about the leadership summit that Biden convened a couple of weeks ago to uh, to get more, you know, to get aligned, allies aligned behind this. And so I just, yeah, the money, the money, the money, right? <laughs> Follow the money. Yeah, but also the, the technology and the potential of that. And I think we saw a glimpse, and I mean a glimpse of that uh, very recently here in California. I don't know if you saw this story, Heather, but on uh, April 29th, around 2.30 in the afternoon, California hit 94.5% renewable energy. <laughs> I did see that story. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, the big big hanging asterisk was that it was for something like four or five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I also uh, saw that but, part of the story. You yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, credit is due. Uh, it, it's, it got to that point, and that's a, that's a record. Uh, I don't think we have anyone of, of this the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world has had ever achieved something like that. UK has managed to get through, I think, a couple of months without any coal power. And, you know, you do have smaller countries, Costa Rica and Iceland, for example, that achieve 100% or, or nearly 100% of their power from renewable energy. Iceland, obviously, geothermal. And, but nothing of the, on the magnitude of California. And so, you know, yeah, four seconds, but you know, what if the rest of the time it was 70 or 80%? That's still pretty good for, for where we are. And considering that the goal to achieve 100% isn't uh, expected, or at least the, the commitment is by 2045. So that's what at 24 years from now, and we're, we're hovering close to that. You know, I think that's really one, one sunny day in April does not, you know, make that commitment true. But uh, I think it just shows that we're edging our way towards that. And of course, with renewable energy ramping up so quickly, not just in California, but in, and not just in the US, but around the world, and the majority of new installed generation coming from renewables, this just bodes well. So I think you know the infrastructure piece, it's not that outlandish, at least the energy production piece of that. There's a lot of other pieces of the infrastructure as it relates to climate change. Still to come, but I, I am encouraged by what we're starting to see. Mm-hmm. Me too. Well, speaking of encouraging, uh, the other story is one that you did, Heather, in, in your Verge Weekly newsletter and, 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 and uh, of course, on greenbiz.com. On the link between net zero and supply chain innovation, I think a lot of people know that that if you look at across 20 or 30 sectors, that the overwhelming number of those sectors 80 or 90% of their carbon footprint is in their supply chains, their scope three emissions. And attacking that is is the hard part. And uh, yet you're seeing progress there, Heather. So what did you find out? So what I was looking into was how many of the net zero commitments include the supply chain, include the scope three. And and the, the answer is not that many right now, right? It, because it is so hard, as, as you were just referencing. Um, the World Economic Forum and Boston Consulting Group had had a, a report out in January where they estimate that suppliers, though, in food, construction, fashion, consumer goods, electronics, automotive, professional services, and freight, those eight industries account for 50%, 50% of global emissions. So when you talk about net zero, if you're not talking about the supply chain, that's a big gap, right? So what I did with this piece was just look at who's talking about their supply chain and what they're doing with their supply chain. 
And I was uh, uh, not surprised to, to, to see some of the names here, like IKEA, for example, is part of a group that has signed what they call the 1.5 Degrees Supply Chain Leaders Pledge. And the, the intention of that is to basically push their, their net zero commitment down into their suppliers at wanting their suppliers to have their emissions by 2030 and reach net zero before 2050. So IKEA is in that group, um, Nestle, Tech Mahindra, Ericsson, the wireless company. Um, so there's a, a growing number of companies that are focusing in on the supply chain element of that. And right now, most of them are nudging, as you reported, like with, with Salesforce. I mean, I would put Salesforce in there, as you reported a couple of weeks ago. They're going to require their suppliers to set targets um, to to have some ambition I forget, Joel, what the time frame was on that. I know they did. They have. I know they have to declare what within a year or so. What was was the contract? What did the contract say? Well, this uh, sustainability exhibit, as they're calling, which is an addendum to all their uh, their supplier agreements, saying that in the next round of renewals of those contracts, or if if uh, Salesforce ordered things beyond the, what was the scope of the existing contract, they want to include this, and it does require actually within. Uh, within, I think, uh, depending on the specific activity, within 60 to 90 or, uh, days or six months, well within a year, to take some very specific actions. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I want to go back to what you're saying, because one of the things that was notable, and, and Salesforce is the standout here, the, the exception to this, is that all the companies you mentioned, Nestle, Ikea, Tech Mahindra, Ericsson, are all non-U.S. companies. Mm, um, good and point. And you also mentioned B- BT, uh, Talia, or Telia, I don't know how to say the, I think the Italian phone company and Unilever, all non-U.S. companies. So there's a lot that uh, is happening outside the U.S. where uh, American companies seem to be slow to the game. And again, uh, Salesforce is um, an exception. You also cite VMware, another U.S. company. What's what's going on there? Why, why do you think U.S. companies are so slow to step up? Well, I'm not going to go that to that question. I'm going to go to the the why are the other companies stepping up? Um, because I think part of the the reason they are is is in Europe. Um, and I forget what the time frame is, and this is something I'm researching right now. There will there are going to be disclosure requirements on private companies that could be down in these supply chains. So even if you're small, you're not publicly traded, but uh, Europe is is heightening the scrutiny on suppliers. So that's partly that's part of one part of it. Um, but if you look at BT, British Telecom, I guess is their their legacy name. They've been actually um, a- asking for disclosures on on emissions and other factors for, I think, like four or five years. And it's part of their their contracts and so forth. And I just, you know, I think part of it is the compliance over in Europe and other places that uh, is requiring other organizations to step up. So, you know, I, th- I would think that's one part of it. Um, you know, I, I don't know where their supply, I, I'm not tuned enough to to where their supply chains are if they're if they're exposed in certain countries so I don't know if that's an element of it perhaps you know but one of the things that I I found fascinating um and I'm gonna I'll mention Unilever and I'd actually also mention VMware because the thing that I particularly am interested in is how a company could use this net zero supply chain pledge as a as an opportunity for innovation right so if you look at Unilever, they, they've got this this um, one commitment that requires 
stopping using fossil fuels for formulations in its cleaning and laundry products. So they've said, we're going to get rid of this stuff. And well, that means, okay, you've got to get rid of it. Well, where are you going to go for the new stuff? So they're, they're finding new partners. Um, in the case of VMware, um, they've got what they're calling the Zero Carbon Committed Partner Program. And their idea, um, which I think is, is a wonderful one, is, is to go out and basically set zero carbon cloud data centers. So go, ha- go and help the, the people that are using their software in the cloud, you know, and um, basically coming up with ways that they could provide data centers that are carbon neutral or even zero carbon as is what they're trying to do. The, and, you know, in turn, their customers will be able to achieve their own sustainability goals. So they're saying, okay, we need to be net zero. How are we going to, you know, in the, in this case, they're going, they're going to, to the customer part of it, which is, you know, part of, frankly, the, the, it's the upstream part of the scope three um, de- declaration. So I just found that to be interesting. There are not like lots of examples of this sort of innovation, but this is something that I think will be important um, to, to deliver on this. It's not going to just be about the pejorative things like the do this or else. It's going to be about, hey, you could work with us. And, and you know, there could be just tons of opportunity for startups um, and innovators uh, to step in and, and, uh, and help with these goals. Net zero has become one of the most oft-uttered buzzwords in corporate sustainability circles, and with that visibility will come heightened scrutiny. How exactly will companies measure net zero commitments? What indicators will matter? And does it all add up? Joining me to chat about the corporate net zero movement is Jim Giles, GreenBiz food and carbon analyst and chair of both the Verge Food Program and our new Verge Net Zero Conference, debuting virtually this summer. Welcome, Jim. Hey, Heather. Thanks for having me on. So let's dive right in. There have been literally hundreds of net zero pledges during the past year, and investors and other stakeholders are demanding more detail. How do we measure ambition when it comes to net zero? What are you looking at? This is a great question because I think some of the concerns about net zero are legitimate. But the good news is there is a relatively simple way to see whether these net zero commitments stack up. There's a few things we should be looking for. One of them is, does the company measure and disclose uh, its emissions in line with best practice? And so a critical issue there is, does the company measure its scope-free emissions And the kind of industry standard hallmark for doing that is to disclose via the CDP. And the CDP has a website where you can go and check. So that's a a simple thing to do. And CDP also assigns scores depending on um, the extent to which the company is in line with things like scope free and the fullness of the disclosure. So that's one useful data point to, to look at. Another really critical one is... Are those net zero targets in line with what the Paris Agreement set out to achieve? So you might remember that um, the terms of the Paris Agreement are that all countries will seek to limit global warming to well below two degrees C. And the kind of emerging consensus since then is actually we should be shooting for 1.5 degrees C. 
And there is an organization that probably lots of listeners have heard of, the Science-Based Target Initiative, which takes a look at companies' emissions reduction strategies and says, well, are they in line with two degrees C of warming or 1.5? And it rubber stamps them as approved or not. So again, that's a very useful thing to look at. And a critical thing there is, okay, company, you have this 2050 net zero target, but that's an awful long way off. And a lot's going to happen between now and then. So what we really need to be seeing is this critical thing, the interim target. What is the 2030 target? In many ways, the 2025 or 2030 target is more important than any vague commitment to doing something in 2050. Why is that? Well, 2050, a, a 2050 target can, and it's not unreasonable for this to be true, it can rely on technological innovation, for example. So a company might say, well, we're going to continue to emit burn a lot of fossil fuels, but we're, we're going to invest a lot in direct air capture. And, and so we're going to draw it all out of the atmosphere and, and hit net zero in that way. Now, that is a great deal of uncertainty with that strategy. It's not a terrible idea, but we really don't know if direct air capture can scale cost effectively. So to make that kind of 2050 commitment based on that uncertainty really doesn't, it's, it's not up to standard. What we need is, as well as that kind of long-term ambition, we need companies to show that they're serious about making immediate emission cuts and getting to an interim target. Yeah. I want to go back to something you were saying at the beginning with the scope three. And I, I, I believe I've been finding out in my own reporting, more organizations are requiring their suppliers to report to the CDP. So is that what, you, what you're talking about when, it, when a large multinational says, hey, uh, supplier, you've got to report your numbers? Is that, is that what we need to watch for? That is a particularly exciting development, yeah. And, and this has been around for a while. So uh, Walmart, an early pioneer of this approach, um, I, I forget the date when they set the gigaton uh, project target several years ago now, where they basically committed to working with suppliers to remove a gigaton of carbon dioxide equivalent from their supply chain. It's a big amount. And what we're seeing is other companies like that leveraging the power of a big buyer to say, hey, if you want to work with us, uh, you need to take serious steps. You, the supplier, need to take serious steps to reduce your emissions. And this, I think, is a really powerful lever for companies to pull. Unilever, another great example. And I think all that kind of work over the next few years, we're going to see that bearing fruit in terms of smaller companies having to take action because they need the continuing business relationship with these larger organizations. So... Let's take what we were just talking about, focusing on the food sector as an example. Which companies are doing the right thing or meeting, meeting the definition of what you were just talking about of good practices? Yeah, I, I actually sort of got more interested in which companies are not doing oh. the right thing. But, I'm gonna, but let me start by answering your question. Okay. You know, and I think we've mentioned some of them. Walmart have a 1.5 degree C. Uh, science-based targets initiative, approved targets, target Unilever have one as well. PepsiCo had a 1.5C target approved this year. Um, there's fantastic work going on in the supermarket sector, particularly in Europe. Big, big names like Sainsbury's, Tesco's are active there. Um, I will say that um, most, maybe not all of those targets do not include scope-free. So there is plenty of room for improvement, but there's also some serious ambition out there, and I think we need to recognize that. However, when I, when I began to think about this sector, it did strike me that Walmart and Unilever and PepsiCo get a lot of attention 
And yet, big as they are, there's, there are many other food system players out there um, that are operating much more quietly and not getting attention and, frankly, not doing what needs to be done in terms of tackling climate change. And I wanted to go and have a look at, at some of those companies um, so I could share some of what I found there, if that's useful. So are you talking about laggards, potentially? I'm talking about laggards, mm-hmm. yeah. So let me give you an example. I started with this. Uh, I started with Post Holdings, mm-hmm. uh, a food company. I started with them for no better reason other than uh, I sit down to breakfast with my kids every morning and we eat breakfast cereals manufactured by Post Holdings companies. Um, it's a big company. It's a, it's a holding company for many brands you've heard of and a whole bunch you haven't had heard of because they just they do important work like supplying ingredients to food service companies but they're kind of behind the scenes. Uh, in total, uh, all these companies brought in $5 billion in sales in 2020. Um, yet they have not responded to the CDP uh, climate surveys, or at very best, the, the post-holdings company's response has been very patchy since around 2012. Um, and they have no climate, or at least the umbrella company, has no climate target at all, let alone mm-hmm. a science-based target. Mm-hmm. And um, hmm. I did check in with Post Holdings to say what's up, what's happening here. It does sound like there's change of foot in the company. They talked about um, uh, sort of raising their game in terms of collecting ESG information across the company's brands as a whole, but they don't have an immediate plan to set a science-based target. Okay. Who else should we be watching? Yeah, well, another one, you know, moving from brands to retail, uh, public, or Publix. Mm, Publix. Mm-hmm. Publix, yeah. Um, uh, a big retailer in the Southeast, uh, almost 40 billion in sales in 2019. Also, has a fantastic record as a place to work. It's employee owned, employs about 225,000 people. People like working there, and the company regularly wins awards as being a great place to work. Um, it doesn't win a bunch of environmental awards, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't respond to the CDP. CDP sends the company surveys. It does not does not respond. Um, it has a very lengthy corporate uh, sustainability report, but that report is very light on the kind of serious action that I think we need to see, and including critically no target for greenhouse gas reductions. Wow, didn't know that. Is there anyone else you want to mention? Well, I think... I, I'm sort of inclined to take a glass half full look at, at most things. And I was struck by, although this was sort of gloomy, I was looking at this data and I was kind of getting down. I was also struck by the signs of change. So um, Albertsons, uh, another chain that I was looking at, the owner of Safeway and other retail brands, uh, 2,000 stores nationwide. I was really struck by the fact that they had no science-based target when I started doing my work. And then right in the middle of it, as I was doing my research and uh, checking some names, uh, up they popped. They committed to setting a science-based target uh, just last nice. month. Okay. Um, and I think that is a great example of what we're seeing is a whole bunch of factors, pressure from investors, from employees, from consumers, from regulators. It's all combining and it's making it harder and harder for these laggards to kind of operate quietly and not take the action we need to see. They are coming under increasing pressure. So I suspect, and I want to come back and do this similar work every year, 
going forward. And I suspect every time I do these informal surveys, we'll see more and more food and ag companies stepping up and making changes. Excellent. Well, and I imagine we will hear more about companies on both sides of the discussion during Verge Net Zero in July. Before you go, can you offer a peek into what attendees can expect? Yeah, thank you. We're so excited about this event, 27th, 28th of July. We created it partly because we're seeing companies across all sectors setting net zero targets. And we're seeing those companies being pretty open about the fact that they don't know how to get all the way to net zero. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. and um, we're also seeing, as, as, as we talked about at the beginning, legitimate concerns about some of those targets that they're not up to scratch. And so we think it's a great opportunity to bring people together and to kind of say what is best practice and what can we learn from the companies that are helping set that best practice. So we'll have a bunch of kind of intro 101 sessions where we'll help people get up to speed with the business of measuring uh, emissions, creating reductions roadmaps and, and learning how to responsibly offset emissions. We'll have several sessions on new and emerging technologies that can play a role in the net zero transition. And we'll have a a lot of discussion about some of the most interesting controversial areas, such as what can we expect of oil and gas? You know, oil and gas companies need to transition to net zero too, but it's a particularly difficult challenge for them. Uh, We'll also be looking at, you know, maybe alongside oil and gas, the other most controversial area here is like offsets. What does responsible use of offsets look like? These are all things that we'll be getting into, and uh, I hope listeners will join us there. Excellent. Well, I'm going to, so uh, looking forward to see who you line up. Thanks, Jim, for dropping into the podcast. Thanks for having me. You just heard from Jim Giles, the Food and Carbon Analyst for Green Biz Group and the Director of the Verge Food and Verge Net Zero Conference Programs. The electrification of virtually everything, including transportation, buildings, and industry, is seen as critical to reaching deep decarbonization and cleaning up the electric grid. So what technologies, policies, and financing models do we need to get there? And how can we ensure that this transition doesn't leave systemically disadvantaged communities behind? Those questions will drive the dialogue later this month during Verge Electrify, a new complimentary online event from the Verge Conference and Expo Series team, which is scheduled for May 25th and 26th. Joining me to chat about what we can expect from the program is Katie Fernbacher, GreenBiz Senior Writer and Transportation Analyst and Co-Chair of Verge Electrify. Hey, Katie. Hi, Heather. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. Let's level set. Why is the concept of electrification getting so much attention right now? Yeah, I think there are a couple reasons. Um, One is that there's no single bullet for solving climate change. So broad electrification of these sectors, in addition to cleaning up the power grid, is one of the best single options we have for broad decarbonization of society. And secondly, some of these markets, especially electric transportation, are really taking off right now, you know, from a business perspective in the business world. There's just kind of a huge interest and momentum um, around financing uh, the rollout of electric vehicles. All the automakers are launching new electric models. So there's a lot of heat going on behind that market. 
And then finally, you know, with the uh, Biden administration, there's been this huge emphasis on finally kind of funding the build out of electric infrastructure across the U.S., whether that is for for cleaning of the grid, whether that's EV charging infrastructure, all these things in the their new infrastructure plan. So that's really kind of putting the spotlight on broad electrification, at least in America. So I know that your co-chair, Sarah Golden, our energy guru, is focused on the grid and buildings and 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 that those those aspects of electrification. And one of the things that one of the program highlights that I've seen um, is particularly interesting to me is the microgrid um, stuff. Like we we see microgrids coming in to help with this electrification movement and to support buildings that are becoming electrified. And of course, uh, you know helping provide resilience to the grid at the same time. I'm curious about the intersection of that movement and the fleet movement, right? The electric fleet movement, which you cover very closely. Um, um, How do those developments intersect and collide and and provide an opportunity? So for some of the fleets that are really aggressively electrifying, so say Amazon or FedEx, they are, um, those fleet managers are actually very deeply investigating and researching how they can change some of their distribution centers to use microgrids, to use on-site solar, to use stationary batteries at their, at those facilities. And they're using those in ways to match with the electric charging of their new fleet of vehicles. So, you know, if you have all these, um, aspects, decentralized, distributed, and clean aspects on your buildings, um, the fleet managers can sometimes, you know, route around the utility. So the utility takes a very long time to build out power infrastructure to those facilities on the timelines that these companies want. So you can route around the utility. You can also lower your prices by moving the charging onto your own facility, you know, maybe when the utility prices are high. I want to build, I want to build on this just a little bit more. Um, because one of the the developments I've seen, obviously fleets are in different places. They're mobile. They're you know they have to they they come back to a depot at, at the end of the day, but they could be going to other places that aren't necessarily in their original building. So, what about like mobile microgrids? Do you see anything happening there? Well, so in terms of uh, depot charging, you know the fleets that are um, investing heavily in charging are mostly the ones where they're coming back to the depot because that makes the most sense in terms of the lowest cost for charging and having the most control. So companies that um, either have, you know, maybe they have a fleet that is a team of sales folks that take home their vehicles overnight, or maybe it's these over-the-road truckers that are driving, you know, from here. From I'm in San Francisco, but from here up to Oregon or something like that, where they're not returning to a depot, those companies are not necessarily yet investing in electrifying um, a centralized depot, and they're they're actually moving much more slowly than the ones that are able to electrify a depot. Um, but there's other options for companies like that are either bringing home vehicles or having vehicles move over long distances. So it wouldn't be microgrids, but it could be they could invest in, um, you know, like virtual solar. So credits for solar or, or other things like that. So there's a lot of new options um, uh, emerging. Okay. What stands in the way of the electrification movement? Across 
transportation buildings and industries? Across, well, yeah, across everything. I mean, not just your, not just EVs. Just what are the obstacles that we face to getting there? I think financing is the biggest obstacle. You know, who's going to pay for these upgrades? And working with the, you know, each local utility in these in these companies regions. So I think you know all all the technology is there. You know, battery technology for vehicles. You know, heat pumps for buildings, uh, electric machines. Like it's not new to, or emerging technology. It's more about the financing and business models to get um, these technologies deployed and just awareness. You know, it's kind of, especially with things like heat pumps, you know, just it's the technology has been there for a while, but the awareness is, is not that widespread. So I think, you know, with these growing movements from the environmental community, from policymakers, you know, from folks like us, I think that we're really putting the spotlight on, you know, how important getting some of these technologies out is. So before I let you go to finalize the program, can you share some programming highlights? Yes, we are so excited about the event. Um, we've got an interview with Jigger Shaw, and I think Green Biz audience know him well, but he just became the head of the DOE's loan program. So that's very exciting. That's going to be a live interview on day one. We've got a really great uh, talk from Saul Griffith, um, who founded Rewiring America, which looks at you know how electrification uh, can solve climate change and create 25 million jobs in the U.S., um, we are having a conversation about electric buildings. We just brought in the mayor of Oakland, Libby Shaft, and we've got the um, CEO of Seattle City Light, Deborah Smith, to chat about that. We've got um, the new CARB chair, so it's the California Air Resources Board. The new chair of that is Leanne Randolph, and she's going to do a se- uh, doing a session about um, California's zero emission vehicle goals. Um, and then we've got one on um, how to make sure that electrification is equitable, uh, the widespread electrification um, is available to all communities. And that's gonna be moderated by Paula Glover, Alliance to Save Energy, and with Jacqueline Patterson with the NAACP and Curtis Wynn, who was formerly with Renoke Electric Cooperative. So we've got a ton of good stuff going on. Um, we've got a lot of interesting uh, digital video bites and some music. And um, so I think not only will attendees learn a lot, but it's gonna be a lot of fun as well. Well, I'll let you get back to it. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks for having me, Heather. Always good to chat. You just heard from Katie Farnbacher, GreenBiz Senior Writer and Transportation Analyst and Co-Chair of Verge Electrify. I'm Jesse Klein, Associate Editor and Food Reporter for GreenBiz. Sodexo is a giant in the food service world. The company provides catering and food management to almost 8,000 sites, including private corporations, government agencies, schools from preschool through university, and hospitals. In 2019, Sodexo launched the Waste Watch by Lean Path program, a food waste initiative with the goal of reducing Sodexo's food waste by 50% by 2025. LeanPath is a technology company based in Oregon, and they provided Sodexo with a smart food waste measuring system. The tablet tracking device is installed in the kitchen. Frontline kitchen employees weigh the leftover food and trimmings that aren't consumed each day. This nitty-gritty data is then analyzed to find common problems and places for improvement. To get a sense of how the program is progressing, we're joined by Jude Medeiros, lead of Sodexo's Waste Watch by Lean Path program. Thanks for having me. 
So this program launched in 2019 at 3,000 sites. What have you learned from the program in the past two years? You know, I think the biggest takeaway for us, it's all about engagement, right? So that means telling our, our customers and clients the work that we're doing in the kitchen, but more importantly, arming our on-site teams with what they need to be successful launching this program with their frontline uh, employees. So we developed a lot of different materials um, that support that. Um, one of the first things that we did was we initiated a change management program for our management teams that really talked to them about how to use um, tools to engage the team and work through any of the barriers that may come up uh, in the kitchen. So that was the first thing that we did. Second thing we did is we created an employee engagement program um, for our managers to use. So that includes things like um, teaching people in small bites about sustainability from the the global issues all the way down to what's happening in the local community. We feel that some people are afraid to take on this work because they're not corporate, uh, they're not like specialists in sustainability and it makes people nervous, but this program, we've made it so easy that everybody feels comfortable doing the work. And what have you learned about your food waste and, and that system inside your own company? Well, you know, it's incredible because at, at the very start I had, you know, some chefs say, oh, we don't, we don't have waste. Well, everybody has waste. And, um, you know, what we've learned is our biggest opportunity to improve is in our overproduction category. Um, that seems to be an area where we, because of the nature of our business, and I'm going to use the word abundanza, right, which is an Italian word, um, you know, we want everything to look big and beautiful and bountiful and people eat with their eyes, but we realize there's, there's a lot of waste associated with that. So I think one of our biggest learnings is how can we still have a beautiful display of food um, from the beginning of the, the meal period to the end without overproducing and wasting. That's really interesting. Do you plan to expand to the almost 8,000 sites and what will that take for to do that? We definitely plan on expanding this program. The, the goal is really to have it in, in every facility that produces food. That's the ultimate goal. Um, we, in 2019, we committed to deploying 3,000. Um, we're still uh, working through that number right now. We lost a little time during COVID, but yeah, we are not slowing down. We are fully deploying. And what will it take to expand, to go from the 3,000 to the, you know, 8,000? How, how to scale up in that, in that way? Um, well, we have a really great process in place. And again, we don't do this alone at Sodexo. We do it with our partner at Lean Path. And so um, we have different, different lines of business and we work with different uh, segment leaders to identify um, locations in their world that would benefit from this program. And so it's kind of a collective um, between the leadership of our different segments. So that would be government or corporate or healthcare or universities. Um, and then we, and then we uh, come up with a deployment plan. We share what it's gonna look like, what uh, some expectations uh, might be around uh, operational efficiency, right? So we share some good news. Um, and, then it's, and then it's a project plan. Then it's, it's basically shipping and getting people online. And of course, using the equipment on a continual basis. Before launch, Sodexo stated that the program would reduce waste by 50%. What numbers have you been seeing and, and have you been reaching that 50%? 
Uh, I will tell you right now, because I, I checked this right before we got on the phone, right now we are at 44.8% um, reduction. Now, that is for the people currently using the tracker. Okay, so it, during COVID, unfortunately, we have closed down some operations or have very limited services. So not all of our trackers are in service right now, but the ones that are, are tracking at a 44.8% reduction. That's great. Sodexo is a really large company that supplies food to lots of different industries, hospitals, universities. Are there some sites that are more complicated to deploy this program than others and why? You know, not really. De deploying is the easy part. Getting the people to to um, become it part of their daily routine is another thing, right? So the deploying is easy. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in universities, you know, we have a clientele that is really interested in this topic, right? So there's a lot of engagement with the students um, and they typically have more than one tracker because they have different food outlets where, for example, in healthcare, we actually deployed 200 trackers in healthcare during COVID because they they realized healthcare hospitals were open and they realized, hey, you know what, with all of this uncertainty, this piece of equipment is really going to help us manage our business. Um, and so what are we tracking in healthcare? We're, we're tracking uh, not only the food that gets made in the cafe, but also things like patient meals. So each segment, um, the, the deployment is the same, but the utilization of the tracker is a little bit different depending. A small but growing number of companies are treating their corporate sustainability strategies not just as a necessary risk management function, but rather as an integral part of their innovation roadmap. Design software firm Autodesk, which sells products used by engineers, product developers, and other makers of things, definitely subscribes to the latter school of thought. Customers are at the center of how the company thinks about where to invest the funds generated by its internal carbon price, which it set years ago to help fund measures that reduce its carbon footprint. That price was recently raised to $10 per metric ton, although the company's not disclosing what it was before that change. I recently chatted with Ben Thompson, Director of Sustainable Business for Autodesk, about the vision behind that pricing change, how the company picks carbon removal projects to fund, and why its internal and external strategy for sustainability go hand in hand. I selected several highlights from our conversation, starting first with his insights into the process that went into setting the carbon price. Here's Ben Thompson. Uh, what what should a carbon price be from, you know, kind of the implicit shadow price of what we are actually seeing as the market price for carbon offsets? And that was embarrassingly low <laughs> to probably the the very high extreme of the social cost of carbon that the UN, the World Bank, um, even the EPA, all that, that has changed over administrations and, and then lots of different things in between. And so what we landed on, and I'll emphasize is a floor that we feel like takes in a right balance of like what, what's the cost of carbon that the market's going to bear? And um, what's the cost of making these investments? What is high enough that um, we think that this will actually start incentivizing change in our company, right? This isn't just an investment fund for the sustainability team. This is something that actually is for the company and changes the way we think about investments. So, so we want to set it high enough for that, but not 
so high that, you know, this could be prohibitive for, for our company right now, or uh, would kind of create the wrong message internally. Cause you know, if, if it's too high, then, you know, this becomes much more of a cudgel than a, a balanced carrot and stick. So, you know, we're, we're happy with the $10 and uh, th this is comparable to what we've seen a lot of our tech peers set and, you know, leaders like Microsoft are raising it even higher from there. And um, all I can say is I'm excited for us to reevaluate um, in our next cycle. The money that Autodesk collects from that internal fee goes to a carbon fund that is invested in efficiency goals and in zeroing out remaining emissions. As of its latest fiscal year, Autodesk is claiming net zero status after offsetting 150,000 metric tons of carbon emissions equivalent and, of course, investing in many different projects. Once again, here's Autodesk's Ben Thompson talking about the balance between buying carbon offsets and investing in new technologies or nature-based solutions that actually remove carbon. Carbon offsets, I think, kind of get a bad rap out, out there. It's, it's uh, similar with Rex. It's like, oh, it's this financial instrument about taking credibility for something that you didn't actually do and you just kind of sign a check to make, get it to happen. Regardless of how you feel about that or the actual accounting of the carbon in the footprint, what we really want to do is help change the industry. And I'll, I'll say that in kind of two ways. The first is thinking about all of our customers. They are designing and making the entire built environment. And if we can be supporting the types of innovations that they're driving, um, whether they're you know, manufacturing new clean technology or building net zero energy buildings, that's something that's going to create a much larger scale shift than if we're just buying offsets off the shelf. The second thing I'll say there is uh, our customers notwithstanding, we're wanting to help develop the, uh, the market for you know, new renewable technologies, uh, new innovative products. And by, by working with customers of Autodesk and of the Autodesk Foundation, we're able to identify a lot of those kind of bleeding edge opportunities. The types of things that I would want to be investing in, even if I wasn't working at Autodesk. Um, and it, it's, you know, a lot of companies might think of the co-benefits on top of the carbon. For us, really the co-benefit is the carbon and the project themselves are the things that we're wanting to support. And, and so one example of those is um, burn cook stoves. Um, they're this uh, group that is, using technology to figure out how to make cleaner burning cook stoves for use in the global south. Um, we've been a partner of, of them and their partners for a long time. And if we can create a revenue opportunity for them that gets them to market faster, that helps them make better products, we definitely want to help there. Oh, and we get to basically write off the emissions from that activity. So it, it's kind of taking the carbon offset model and turning it on its head. And that's something that we're hoping to do a lot more of and doing more orig origination ourselves instead of just having to work with the different brokers that are out there to align it with the customers that we're looking to support. You can expect to hear more about that alignment with customers, especially as more companies set their own net zero goals and hunt for ways and ideas of achieving them. I don't want to sell the opportunity of our customers short. And... Autodesk has found a way to pivot beyond just focusing on the four walls and the risk inherent and like, oh, how do we run a more sustainable company? And has turned that on its head 
to identify how do we turn this into a strategic differentiator, into a way to drive more growth in business while making way more positive impact than we ever could have imagined with our sustainability team that was just focused inside the business. And I, I guess I would just I would propose that this is the future of our industry. It's, it's about value creation, not just risk management. And the companies that are going to be most successful during this kind of ESG gold rush that's going on are going to be the ones that are able to tie it to their core business, not just how they operate their business. For Autodesk, we are partnering with our customers to help them solve their sustainability challenges. We could never do that if we didn't know this stuff first and foremost ourselves. And it's when you can understand that opportunity and, and kind of bridge things, that that's when you can start speaking to executives in a way that helps, helps demonstrate to them that you understand their challenge and their pain and bridging this opportunity of you know, a more efficient, uh, more diverse, uh, more resilient supply chain how that can help meet the greater goals of the organization. And uh, it, was, it was only by marrying that stuff up through our corporate strategy that we're able to make these types of commitments happen. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, tips, complaints, anything you got. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350 and Voices of the 30 Under 30. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by S&P Global Sustainable One. Introducing you to a single source of essential sustainability intelligence. Visit our new website, spglobal.com forward slash ESG. And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com.